Hi, this is Noel Guevara, and you're listening to Level Playing Field Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Level Playing Field. My name is Randy Boos, and I'm your host. This is my podcast where I interview LGBTQ members of the sports community. Before I get to today's guest, I want to go over a couple of things that I'm very excited about. The first is I'm a big rugby fan, and this year, 2019, is a rugby World Cup year. This year, it's going to be held in Japan. Leading up to that, I want to go over one of the organizations that I really admire in the LGBT sports community, and that is IGR, the International Gay Rugby Association. Every other year, they host a tournament called the Union Cup for European rugby clubs. This year, it's going to be in Dublin, Ireland. This Thursday, I have an episode coming out where I interview Union Cup chairman Richie Fagan, who's also a member of the host club Emerald Warriors. It's not an hour of me talking about Richie to Richie. We do have a quick little intro just to introduce the listener to him. But we basically talk about the Union Cup, why Emerald Warriors did it. We talk what players can expect when they arrive. Just overall what what they want to accomplish out of it. Right now, Ireland is in third place in their world rugby rankings, and we go over what it means to host the Union Cup in Ireland this year. That's coming up Thursday. This Saturday, I get to speak to someone I've wanted to speak with for a while. She is a professor of philosophy and roster faculty in women's and gender studies. She's a world champion cyclist, public speaker and activist for transgender rights. She is Dr. Rachel McKinnon. Dr. McKinnon is someone I wanted on when I first came up with this podcast. It's, and I only want to entertain, I want to educate. And Dr. McKinnon is someone who can do both. I am someone who is forming the opinion of trans athletes right now. I have so much to learn, and Dr. McKinnon is the perfect person to learn from. I look forward to my talk with her on Saturday. This episode will probably come out Tuesday. Now on to this episode. This episode's guest is Noelle Guevara. I first heard about Noelle on Outsports where she wrote an article talking about coming out. I highly recommend you read that article. Um, It's great. She has a little um, quote from her sister, which just adds to the story. I will have it in the show notes. But for Noelle, we talk about playing soccer and dance early on in California, making the move with her family to Arizona where she left dance and moved on to playing soccer not only with her high school team her club team but also a short stint with the under 20s for the Mexican national team once she moved on to college at Northern Arizona University is when she had her feelings develop for women and she has her first girlfriend she comes out to her family her friends And eventually she moves to the Arizona Diamondbacks and comes out to them. She takes on the responsibility of the first Pride Night for Diamondbacks. And it's always nice to see when a member of the LGBT community takes over Pride because not only do they do a fantastic job usually with the Pride Night itself, but they make sure that the club that they work at, Arizona Diamondbacks for her, also make it an all-year thing and not just a one-night 
pride flag, pride logo, night and move on. She continues to work with the LGBTQ community in Arizona. She's also proud of a new program she's starting, um, and we talk about it. It's called Girls Play Ball. She talks about that. I will also have a link for this on the show notes as well. But as you know, I've said before, I hate long intros, and I am done. So let's get going with Noel Guevara. So welcome, Noel. I am so thankful for you coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. I always start with your earliest memory. What's the earliest memory you have as a child? It's really tough. So as a former soccer player, I've had a handful of concussions, but uh, the few things that I recall are more places and who I was with and what I was doing. But I, I think my earliest memory was about four or five years old and I lived in Anaheim, California, about two blocks away from Disneyland. And I remember walking home from school with my nanny. And at the time, the reason that we had a nanny was because my mom was a lawyer and my dad was a regional sales manager. So I had a a Mexican nanny who would stay at home throughout the day and uh, walk with us. And she used to speak Spanish to me back and forth. And I remember her saying something about rushing home to try to get home. So that way in the evening, I can see the fireworks uh, at Disneyland and be able to catch my parents when I came home. So that, that's kind of my earliest memory, but a lot of it is faint and fragment. And um, that, that's what I can think of off the top of my head right now. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Usually my earliest memories are just like flashes. Yeah. Of like images and, and moments. Yep. And as we get older, it, it gets harder, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. What was it like growing up in Anaheim? It was awesome. I mean, I, I was a very outdoorsy kid. Um, you know, everything that I can recall with my two younger sisters was playing outside. We had a, we lived in a neighborhood that was super family oriented. My parents used to, you know, sit out front, um, in front of the house with the neighbors and they would alternate who you know brought the wine coolers and the beer and they would just watch the kids play outside so I was always you know playing um, with the neighbors riding bikes kicking the soccer ball throwing a baseball um, uh, you know running around and I recall always playing with the boys and wanting to beat up on the boys and um, I was super super competitive Um, it was just something that you know my parents had to pull me out. It would be, you know, almost bedtime, almost that, that period where the fireworks would come on. Again, I, I, I mentioned the fireworks, but that was kind of my indication of time was that, you know, this was inside the house. You had to be ready for bed. You could see the fireworks from my bedroom window as a child, and that was bedtime. So um, I always look forward to, you know, not only spending time outdoors with my, my uh, neighborhood friends, but again, being able to, watch the fireworks every single night and go to Disneyland as an annual pass holder every few weeks as as a family. That's cool. So you mentioned being competitive. I take it you then you were involved in sports at a young age? Yes. When I was in elementary school, I actually liked to dance 
and I like to play soccer. Um, I loved playing sports, you know, in school. I actually was just as good of a dancer up until uh, we decided to move to California when I was not or from California to Arizona when I was nine years old. But I remember asking my parents when we moved here, my mom said, you could either choose soccer or dance. And I said, dance. And my mom said, well, your dad played semi-pro soccer. So why don't we do soccer instead? Um, but I, it shows you a little bit about who I am. I, I love, you know, the, I love music. I love to dance. I, I really enjoy, you know, the, the aspect of how you can hear, uh, you know, the instruments and the musicality of, um, dance. And it's so incredible that that sport in itself is, uh, you know, you see some in amazing athletes that come from the sport of dance. And I, Wish that I would have continued, but obviously I'm glad I chose the path that I chose with uh, soccer down the road. So, what type of dance was it? I did tap, I did ballet, um, I did rhythmic dancing. I actually was one of the best dancers in my uh, class growing up. That I was asked to do many solos for our, um, uh, you know, receptions at the end of the year. Whenever we would have these big award shows, so I. I did everything. And my teacher loved me. I had long brown hair and she said that I was her little Pocahontas. So she um, always filled me into any sort of Disney routine and I took great pride in it. I uh, um, stepped up to the the plate whenever she called on my name and um, both, you know, my sisters and I all enjoyed dancing. So it was kind of a, a family affair. You mentioned your sisters a few times already. How how many sisters do you have and how old are they or how much younger are they? T- I have two younger sisters. I have Addison and Kyle. Um, Addison is just a few years younger than me. She's um, uh, three years younger than me. And then Kyle is about four and a half, five years younger than me. And um, we have two very different uh, dynamics. My uh, sister Addison, she's more like my best friend. Um, she was the you know sidekick that I had always running around with me who um, you know, wasn't quite as adventurous as I was, but always wanted to be with me and be, you know, my, my buddy. And then I had my younger sister who, you know, from the time that she was born, I, you know, held her in my arms. And so I kind of have that nurturing relationship with, and she, um, you know, I always wanted to look out for her as the big sister, but they're very important to me and, um, very, uh, um, supportive and have been such, such huge instruments in my life, the kind of constant figure with, you know, a lot of the chaos that I've had in my life. That's good. You have the the support system. When you, you talked about when you moved to Arizona and you, is that when you actually left dance to play soccer? Yeah. So I, I did um, AYSO uh, in California. And when we moved from uh, California to Arizona, that's when I decided to give up dance and solely focus on soccer. So I did AYSO. My dad was my coach for a couple of years and it wasn't, um, you know, until a couple of years in that I decided that um, club soccer was the next route or what I wanted to do. Um, my mom, you know, threw me into a handful of things while I was um, uh, finishing up elementary school and going into middle school, but I enjoy, I, I tried piano. I, went into drums. My uncle was a professional drummer. So 
He sent me a drum set for Christmas one year, but I pretty much tried everything, but it wasn't until like um, 10 or 11 that I, probably 11 that I really started looking at soccer more competitively and wanted to take it serious. It's interesting because it seems like music and dance are so important to you even now. Do you ever think you'll go back to that in some way? Dance, I I did have uh, a few dance uh, classes in college. I needed a few electives. So uh, my junior and senior year, I did decide to take a hip hop and jazz class. And ironically, that was where I met my first girlfriend and decided or started figuring out who I was. So um, yeah, it's funny how dance and and music kind of uh continue they there are the continuous thing that comes back into my life aside from soccer or work music has been a constant you know as a sports athletic person you are always looking for some sort of music to pump you up pre-game to get you uh kind of in the mood and even to this day when i'm going to work and we have you know a, a big game or a uh you know a few years back when we were in the wild card game I put together playlists in order to pump me up while I was, you know, taking my drive into work or, you know, when I needed to kind of grind out, you know, a couple things throughout the day when things got slow or, you know, pregame when we're getting ready for, um, you know, some of our pregame duties, I, you know, threw on the playlist just to get me going. And yeah, it is definitely a huge passion of mine and constant in my life. Do you find that music also gets set in your memory? Like, you remember a moment you also remember music that goes along with that or yeah it's definitely um lyrics i'm a big lyrics person um so a lot of the lyrics that i correlate you know some of my best experiences to i fall back to so when you know i I won championships or when i was coming out of something uh i gravitated towards music in order to get me through those experiences or um, help me, you know, persevere or kind of, you know, again, pump me up. But yeah, it, it definitely, you know, I have, I'm working on uh, putting together some playlists for my wedding, which I have coming up in October. And I keep falling back on some of those songs and song choices that helped me through some of my peak or best memories. Uh, and I put, you know, those on my playlist. And, and so that way I can share those experiences with my fiance. That's cool. Um, and we'll get to her in a little bit, but let's go back to to soccer. And so the first few years you're in Arizona, your dad's coaching you. Do you have memories of that as your dad? Because I, I imagine my dad never coached me in any sport I played. <laughs> Do you have any like, I don't want to say like bad moments, but was it pretty good to have your dad so involved? Yes. So in the beginning, it definitely was. I mean, I, my dad... As you can imagine, when you're really, really young, he's your hero. You look up to him, you respect him, and he really just wanted to bring out the best in me. And we had so much fun when we were out on the soccer field together. And he had a good balance. He knew that at some point I was going to age out and that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, respect him or hear what he was saying and take his instruction. So a lot of the times, you know, I was someone, as I mentioned a handful of times, I was competitive. So I would ask him, hey, I need to get extra touches. Hey, I need to, um, you know, go out to the soccer field. Can you kick some balls for me? I need to practice on my first touch. I need to practice on my shooting. Can you go shag the balls for me? So even when he wasn't my coach, soccer was our 
one thing that regardless of, you know, how great our relationship was or wasn't, I can lean on him and say, hey, I need your help with this. Can you come with me to the soccer field? Can you pick the soccer ball? And oftentimes, too, with now after, you know, I've, I've been out for maybe um, almost seven or eight years now to him. And when things are bad, like I will, uh, or when things are hard, I would say they're not bad. They're just difficult. Um, he has a, you know, Mexican uh, dad. So he kind of has those old tendencies from, you know, an older generation who um, things were different when he was growing up. So he has really come a long way, but, you know, we, we plan on going to soccer games or, uh, hey, he, when I used to play co-ed soccer, play semi-pro, he would always come to my games. Um, when I would coach individual lessons and private training, um, you know, five or six years ago, he would always be there um, just to be kind of a person, you know, if I needed support or if he, you know, needed some help or if I needed some help checking balls, he was always there. So even now, like if we have a free weekend, I'll say, hey, do you want to go out to the backyard and kick some balls? And that's our way to kind of, you know, have a conversation, open up and just let those uh, walls down a little bit. Um, it's uncomfortable for him. And I've kind of learned how he wants to be, you know, uh, how he wants to talk and how he wants to communicate. So it's great that I now know that I can lean on soccer as our way to open up the, the dialogue and start talking to him and breaking down those barriers. That is awesome that you have that little bonding moment with your dad where, you know, when you have that, when you step outside to kick balls, that you have this moment. I mean, even now, years later from him coaching you on the, on the team, it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. And again, you know, he, he kind of knew. So we had a kind of a expiration date of, you know, how long we would, um, he would be my coach. But he, even when I moved on and had other coaches, you know, he, um, I could always fall back on what he was seeing or, you know, Hey, I, I think that you missed this opportunity or, Hey, maybe you should have worked on your first touch here, or maybe you should have done this. Right. So I was always being coached. I was always being, you know, critiqued and he, he tried to do his best with taking off that coaching hat whenever it came to soccer. Um, and I would do a good job of telling him, Hey dad, like you, we need to just, you know, disconnect here or like we may get into arguments because of it. But, um, yeah, it was nice to have that because I was someone who cared so much about soccer and getting better and pushing myself that if I needed, you know, someone at home, if I wasn't getting maybe that one-on-one -on -one individual attention from the coach, or maybe it was just something I, I felt like I did a poor job in this game, I could at least come home, go to the backyard or take him to the park up the street and say, hey, just spend an hour with me. I need to crank, on, crank this out and work on this. Was there a sadness between you and your dad, maybe you felt or he did, that you know of once that final game happened and you moved on to club soccer? I, I don't recall at the time. However, my dad, if you know my dad, he's, he tries to play off that he's not emotional, but he's that, you know, softy underneath it all. He, you know, cries with every, um, you know, father-daughter movie. He, um, you know, gets choked up when it, when there's some sort of um, moment within his daughter's life, like he cries at graduation. He cried the day that, um, you know, my senior game at NAU, I, it was my very last game. And he cried when he walked out 
alongside me with my family as we were, you know, saying our last goodbye and doing the ceremony. And then he cried. I looked up in the stands when I scored a goal in my senior game at NAU and he, he was screaming, just crying. And afterwards he, you know, I remember vividly him telling me, Hey, Noel, you are so capable of anything. And I'm so proud of you. And he just starts crying. Mm-hmm. So yes, it, I don't recall, but I I would not put it past him. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like an amazing man. Yeah, he's a cool guy. I'd like to think he is. He taught me a thing or two. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on to club soccer. Sure. Actually, while you were playing club, did you play high school also? Yeah, so Arizona was very unique in that um, the – The club teams that I played for, uh, my freshman year of high school, I did play soccer. I actually went through a period of time where um, I didn't, I I actually thought that I was going to quit soccer in eighth grade after some poor experiences with my club team. So I was on a kind of like D2, D3 team my freshman year. And that was just to kind of fall in love with the game again. Um, So I did play high school my freshman year. Sophomore uh, year, I did play, um, and that was after uh, I came back from a few stints with the U-20 Mexican national team. Um, I actually had to try out after all the other girls did, and the high school coach was not upset with me, but he you know, made an exception and let me try out, and of course I made varsity, but um, it was a week after the main tryout for every other girl. So a lot of girls were, you know, obviously upset by that. They thought that, you know, they were playing favorites and there was a little politics behind that. But um, at that time I was playing for the, um, you know, the best uh, club team in the state and they knew that I was valuable and, and obviously, you know, going to play U20 Mexican national team. They thought that that was uh a good enough reason in order to, you know, have me try out uh, later than the rest of the group. But um, yeah, so I played freshman year, sophomore year, um, junior year and senior year. I did not. And that was solely to focus on the club team, do some college showcases and then, um, you know, try to get a college scholarship. So uh, two out of the four years I did play high school soccer. How was the balance between the years you did the high school soccer with your club team was it just I guess the seasons sort of don't overlap right no they they just kind of shut down club soccer so um I I was kind of a a rare so my birthday is December 14th um which is extremely late it I was always kind of the young one um in school I was always the young one on the team and I could either play up in age technically and be with the girls that were in my high school grade, or I could play down and be in the, um, the age range that my, you know, based on the cutoff date was, uh, you know, August 30th or 31st and after was a 91. So I technically played um, a, a year down, if you will. So my, a lot of my teammates were, um, a year younger. So I, yeah, I, you know, always played and my entire team committed to, you know, not playing or playing high school together. Um, so it wasn't really a hard choice and it was always thoughtful. We're going to, you know, do this all in, we're going to do this together. 
Um, technically, you could still choose to play club soccer. There were a few college showcases that were, um, you know, there was a, an opportunity to play those showcases during the high school time, but everything else, you know, uh, league games, all of that shut down during the high school time frame. I still can't imagine what your schedule is like as a high schooler and junior, <laughs> junior high also, you know, you, you've mentioned high school, you mentioned club, you also mentioned Mexico, U20. Was your week just like nonstop school and soccer regardless yeah, so, of the season? Yeah, so I really didn't have a social life. I was kind of that awkward kid. And this is probably why, you know, it took me a while to even understand who I was as a person. I only dedicated myself to school and soccer. And my routine every single day was, you know, wake up, go to school. And in fact, a lot of the times, uh, this is a kind of a sidebar story, but my club coach in middle school, he actually had us bring our soccer ball to school with us for six months. Everything we had to take it, take our soccer ball with us everywhere we went, just so that we always had soccer on top of mine. And that shows you how dedicated of a kid I was. I woke up with my soccer ball. I took it everywhere I went from, you know, the store to the bathroom to sleeping with it to school to soccer practice and that was to help us with our touch but it was only school and soccer and when I got out of school I had only a little time to go home kind of you know collect my soccer things make myself some sort of nutritious snack because everything when you're you know in soccer you have to um, be considerate of your diet and your nutrition and make sure that you're putting in all the right nutrients in order to you know run and uh, burn all the calories that you burn in soccer. So I would come home, make myself, you know, some sort of meal, whether it was a protein shake, uh, apples and peanut butter or anything that was, you know, protein based, um, a ton of calories or carbs. Um, and then, yeah, I would get ready for soccer practice. And it was either carpool or, you know, my sisters, my parents would, you know, throw us into a carpool with, uh, you know, my sister and their teammates or we were always you know, shuttling from one place to another. It wasn't, I was lucky in middle school that a lot of my club soccer uh, practices were nearby within like a 10 mile radius. But once I got into high school and I started playing at that competitive level where I was on the best team in the, in, in the state, I actually had to commute. It was a 40 to 45 minute drive every single day, uh, four plus days a week. And so that also factored in, you know, I had drive time, I had to meet to the carpool location in order to, uh, you know, meet everyone and then go up the 40, 45 minutes. And that doesn't factor in if you hit, you know, a car accident or anything like that. But, and when you're playing for the best high school, or the best uh, club team in the state, you also had conditioning, you had um, mental skills, you had a handful of other things in order to uh, make sure that you are playing at the highest level, almost as if you were, you know, basically practicing to be in college and play D1 soccer. That's what our club team emulated during that time in high school. So it was very serious. I didn't go to many dances. In fact, I can count on maybe one hand uh, how many dances, school dances I went to. And so I had no interest in wearing a dress or heels or, um, you know, trying to get asked on a date or, you know, date guys. It wasn't until high school that I even started looking at dating or anything like that. So 
it was strictly school and soccer. I guess there there wasn't any interesting guys at all. Then you're saying at, uh, at high school? No, I mean in high school it was just you know I I started having relationships with people based on friendships that I made. Um, and I had maybe one or two boyfriends, but um, they were never anything serious or long term. It wasn't none of the relationships started happening until um, the summer after my senior year and college and even then it was short-lived before I you know figured out who I was so Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would imagine if for any reason having three daughters and you guys all played soccer yes and did you guys all did you guys all have schedules like that yeah my youngest sister she went back and forth between soccer and gymnastics where gymnastics and dance those were a little bit earlier in the day so she would have gymnastics practice or dance anytime in around 3, 3.30, so right after school. So my mom would simply have to prioritize who would go there first or, you know, have to work with teammates or, or coaches or, or whatever to try and get, you know, Addison and I to where we needed to go. But yeah, all three of us were in some sort of sport. Um, Addison played soccer as well, and she ended up, you know, playing at uh, an NAIA school for her freshman year of college. But we were both, very competitive playing soccer loved it and did it in order to try and become the best that we can be or try to get a college scholarship that was our goal were you guys competitive among each other yes we used to spend countless hours in the backyard she was actually a defender and she you know she thought that it would benefit her to play against me i was a a forward midfielder so she wanted to, um, you know, we always did one-on-ones in the backyard. So we would um, do it not only to help each other out, but sometimes my dad, you know, when we were in a fight or if, you know, there was some sort of punishment, he would just say, go in the backyard and, you know, figure it out. You guys, you know, duke it out kind of thing. And so, yeah, we would, there would be times where Addison would get so pissed off at me because I knew her weakness. I knew, you know, where she would, um, you know, cave and I could do certain moves that would piss her off. And I would definitely use that to my advantage. And sometimes it would turn into like hair pulling, you know, fighting, like, you know, get turning into a fist fight, but it, it was always in good fun. And it was to, you know, make us better, or it was to, you know, just kind of work through whatever we had. And I think it was all, you know, kind of like, I would say it was kind of like a brother, best friend, friendship that we had and we definitely used soccer in order to try to get over our tips. I remember a story years ago. Um do you know who Reggie and Cheryl Miller are? They're basketball uh, players. Reggie Miller played for the Pacers, I think. And Cheryl Miller was on Team USA. It was before women's league. Mm-hmm. Um but anyways, I remember reading the story where um Reggie talked about his sister was taller than him. Mm-hmm. And he was tall for a basketball, or he's a basketball player, so he's over six feet. But he talked about how he developed his outside shot was because he always had to shoot over his sister. Mm-hmm. What I was wondering is, do you think you and your sister changed your style of play because of always doing one-on-ones? Or do you think it, like there wasn't a specific change, but just overall helped? I think I just learned how to uh, tactically play again 
taller players. So she wasn't that much taller than me, but, you know, understanding from a defensive standpoint, if I look at some of her tendencies as a defender, that maybe that's how other defenders think. And it helped me. So I, you know, a lot of the times when I would spend the time in the backyard, I, I would focus on, okay, if I learn how to dribble this way, or if I try this move, and maybe if I try it on her, will it work in this situation? And I, I would strategically try to, um, you know, things that I wouldn't be able to try in team practice, I would be willing to try against her, because there was no, you know, there was no risk that I, I could try it. And if it didn't work, then it didn't work. Or if, you know, she got mad at me or we got upset, you know, that that's a sister thing. We can get over that. And, you know, she, she may feel burned a little bit and I took pride in that, you know, it, it would make me happy when I would burn her, but um, yeah, it, it definitely helped my game. And um, I think it helped me get better having obviously that relationship with my dad as a kind of coach at home, but her being my little, uh, um, you know, pusher at home was definitely fun and, and uh, having someone who could challenge me and understand what makes me tick too probably, you know, pushed me as well. And I think she, she definitely learned a lot from me. And I, I know that my dad, you know, he used to say stuff that would, you know, compare her to me. And I think that ultimately down the road that led to her quitting um, based on those, those comments and those things that, um, you know, she, she felt like she was always kind of, being um, compared to Noel, the soccer player, rather than Addison, the soccer player. Um, but we were two completely different types of soccer players. She was a defensive and I was an offensive. So it was just kind of an unfair comparison. I want to um, talk about your time with the Mexican national team. Mm-hmm. What, what years did you do that? How old were you? Um, I was 14, 15, 16. And I went back at 19 or 20, I think it was my sophomore year of college. Growing up in California and Arizona, I'm just curious what, what made you decide to play for the Mexican national team? So the way that the style that I played growing up and me being a shorter uh, soccer player, I, I was shorter and thinner and I weighed very little. Um, I hit a hundred pounds, uh, my, the end of my sophomore year of high school and my mom threw a big party and made me a cake once I hit that. But it was, you know, a huge dedication. I had to gain weight. It, it was me eating protein shakes and it was every single day I was trying to, you know, get stronger, get fitter, get faster, but I was already so thin. So I, I knew going into, you know, I, I grew up watching the, 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 you know, the U.S. women's national team, the, um, Mia Hams of the world, all those girls. And, but they were always, you know, much taller than I would ever be. Abby Wambach. I knew that I had this style, this flair to the game that I, it didn't fall in line with the USA women's national team as much as I adored them and my idols played for that team. Uh, you know, my dad, he brought it up one day when I was maybe in middle school and I actually had a, a pretty unique connection. My parents, um, they decided to start hosting the semi-pro heat wave team here locally. And so they were host families for 
a lot of uh, the girls that would come in from out of state or from out of the country. And this is how I started um, getting involved with the Mexican national team. We hosted at one point, one summer, there was three girls living in our roof and I had those role models, um, the Mexican national team players living in our house. And the reason that they selected my parents' house as the host family is because my dad spoke Spanish and they wanted um, you know, these players to feel comfortable when they were staying in their host family for the summer. Um, so I got the experience of, you know, the, these girls were college age and they were, you know, going through college and maybe trying to get to the professional level. And I had those role models. And through that host family experience, um, that's how my dad ended up getting a connection with Leo Cuellar. And um, I remember my dad actually taking him to the airport once as a favor to the the um, the team manager who coordinated my parents becoming the host family. And he started talking about his daughter and he started saying, hey, look, like I have uh, a really young daughter who she's, you know, half Mexican. She plays great, but I just think that she's too small for her age. And this is what I keep hearing from our coaches, that she's too small. She's never going to make it. But trust me, I, you know, I'm a coach. I used to play semi pro. I'm telling you, this girl has something uh, different that no other player has. And so he got me a tryout with um, the U20 Mexican national team when they were coming in town to play against the heat wave. And I remember I only got, you know, five, 10 minutes of playing time. It was toward the end of the game or the, the training session, but they were playing a scrimmage and said, okay, kid, go in there, do do whatever you want. You got 10 minutes. And I remember touching the ball maybe five or six times, but on the second or third touch, the ball, it was a perfect loft over the uh, defending line. I slid through with speed and I uh, knocked the ball over the head of the goalkeeper, the starting goalkeeper of the U20 team scored a goal. I barely was in for 10 minutes, had a few touches and the coach comes over to me and he goes, okay, your dad was ahead. I see something in you. And so that was the start of how I started going down to the uh, U20 Mexican national team was from that tryout. When I started going down there, you know, it, it, it became an experience. It was um, something very, very cool for a young girl at, you know, 14 years old, going out of country for the first time, jumping on a plane by yourself for the first time, getting to experience the culture that my dad raised me on. But, you know, I was doing it without my dad, by myself, going to the Olympic training grounds. It's one of those experiences that you never think that you'd get that opportunity until you walk into those doors and you start, you know, interacting with the team and the, the administration and, um, you know, you're, you're getting your all the right paperwork and documentation. You get the letter in the mail that says, hey, you're coming for the U-20 Mexican national team. Those were the cool things that um, that really made me understand the the realness of the situation but it it was such a wonderful experience and I I enjoyed it um I I learned a lot from those experiences and it was something that I don't ever think I'll regret yes I wish I would have played uh for the U.S. women's national team and still to this day any time I I get a chance to watch them I'm looking forward to watching them in the World Cup in June um, those are my idols and those are the people that I look up to, but I do have, you know, a few strong core role models that I grew up with that stayed at my house that are still some of my best friends that 
you know, have aged out of the Mexican national team, but they're great mentors that I've had over the years. When you were 14, did you speak Spanish going into it or? Yeah. So I, Spanish was my first language growing up. Um, thanks to my dad and the nanny that we had growing up in California. When we moved to Arizona, my mom being, you know, from Michigan, Indiana area, she did not speak any Spanish. So when we moved here, you know, she left her um, law practice that she had in California and wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. So she uh, did not speak Spanish and I, you know, stopped speaking it. My dad would occasionally, you know, speak it when I was on the soccer field. It was kind of like our own code language that, you know, if he screamed something at me in Spanish in order to get me revved up or get me going during the game, at least, you know, the coach wouldn't understand that type of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I continued speaking it through school, which was kind of different. I mean, they don't teach you casual Spanish. They teach you the more formal or the, you know, the, um, the Spanish, the, the Spaniard type Spanish or yeah, um, exactly. the written Spanish. So it was very different, but I could at least get by from what I remembered of conversational Spanish. And then I imagine as you're there, you're picking it up more and you're getting more used yeah. to it. Yeah. And I was there for two week increments or like 10 to two week in increments. So it was very easy to start picking up and feeling comfortable Thankfully, when I was down there, a lot of the times the girls would try to help you and say, okay, let's practice, or they would want to speak and practice their English. So it was, it was all in good fun, and it was, you know, a, le a learning experience for both sides. That's cool. So you were accepted while you were down there by the players. Yeah, for when I was going down there, um, for the first five or six times, they really embraced me initially, and, you know, it it felt like things couldn't couldn't get any better um as I got older you know I I started getting better and, and I kind of became um that girl that was from you know America I was, I was that girl that you know was going to get a college scholarship so I think there was a little animosity there all in all overall I definitely don't regret the experience going down to play Mex play for the U20 Mexican national team that's cool and I can't imagine in your little tryout that you had scoring a goal I mean just the overwhelming excitement and telling your family about it after. My dad was there for sure. And, oh, he you was. know, he was probably doing some, something crazy on the sideline, but yeah, no, I, um, I, I don't think I understood what that was. I just thought, Oh yeah, I scored another goal. Cause I, I was pretty used to scoring goals then. And, but it wasn't until later on that I realized how cool it was. And yeah, once I started getting older, I think I started realizing and becoming more emotional when I scored goals. But back then, it was just, eh, it's another goal. Let's move on to college. Yes. So you, you mentioned before you went to Northern Arizona University, I believe. Mm -hmm. What was it like going from high school, basically almost school and soccer full-time, to college life as a freshman? Well, I... I will say, as I mentioned a couple times before, that the club team that I played for, they really did a good job of prepping you. So, you, again, you had conditioning, you had mental skills. Um, you, the, the conditioning that we did, it was to um, prepare us for college. But, again, when you are immersed in that, you're away from your parents, you're away from the routine that you knew at home, it, it definitely was a transition. So my freshman year, I came into preseason. I was super excited. I made a, a 
a great impression on the team and the coach. I was going to be a freshman who was going to, you know, start right out of the gate. And then I hit a bump and I had an injury. So it then kind of put me off the path my freshman year. So my freshman year was definitely tough as far as, you know, trying to transition with, you know, the, the whole freshman trying to figure yourself out, figure out what you want to do with school, where you, what you want to study and get used to, you know, who you're going to be surrounding yourself around and um, living in a dorm. So that, that was definitely interesting introduction year. Um, but as things got on in college, it was a great experience. Things started to get better. Things started to click. I think it started to click once I started to realize who I was. Again, my, my sophomore year, that was the, the time that I first met, or I met my first, uh, girl crush. And that's when I, I kind of started to seclude myself from my teammates and started to, um, kind of focus on the girl and, and trying to figure out if that was who I was. And I went through that little bump my sophomore year. My coach kind of recognized it and saw that I was going through that. And by the time my junior year hit, we, we kind of addressed it and started talking about it. We didn't, he didn't necessarily, you know, come out and say, Hey, are what's going on with your girlfriend or what's going on with, you know, who you are. It wasn't until my senior year that we actually had that sit down conversation of, Hey, guess what? I'm gay and I'm cool with it. Um, it was actually one of the best conversations I've ever had with any adult when it comes to coming out with, with my uh, club soccer, or my college soccer coach, my senior year, sitting in the bleachers a week before our my senior season was going to start. So, how do you think he noticed? Was he just that in tune with his players, or just in tune with you? I. I it seems rare where a coach would would notice. Yeah. So I think he he noticed from my performance. Um, you know, the first two years, I was supposed to be this this star. We're not start freshmen, but I was supposed to be a freshman that, you know, contributed right away. And I had this adjustment period of two years. And yes, I had, you know, injuries. And yes, I had, um, you know, other things to uh, throw into the mix. But and that's to be expected in your first few years uh, in college. But I think junior year was the almost year for me where, again, I hit a couple um, uh, injuries and I just never bounced back from those injuries. and. He he likes to attribute it to it being a small town and he hears things and he he picked up on who I started hanging out with and he saw he started to see, you know, this person and this family and the stand supporting me. I I it could be a combination of all of those factors, but he was just a very intuitive coach and he understood relationships and he understood that he needed to have them with his uh players and coming into college. I had an incredible relationship with him. He was, you know, someone I respected and I wanted to work for and I wanted to work hard for. And then, you know, that kind of faltered after a few years. And he was like, okay, I need to get, you know, uh, reconnected and, and get, you know, our energy back on the same page. And after an amazing preseason, my senior year, that's when he said, okay, Noel, I got to sit down. We got to ch- talk. How's everything with your family? He started, you know, the, the basic, question but it wasn't until he said you know is there anything that's bothering you is there anything that's on your mind is there anything that you want to share with me because I'm here for you and I support you and 
I, you know, I look at as you as my daughter, Noel, and if anyone needs to be here for you, I will be here for you. And that moment was just kind of like him saying, Hey, look, I, I support you. Just tell me what's going on. And I told him and I said, Hey, look, I'm gay. This is my girlfriend. Um, you know, I've been meaning to tell you for a while. I'm sure you knew. Um, but you know, in order for me to have the best year of my life, I, I just felt like you needed to know that. And I don't think I can tell my parents. And I appreciate it. If you don't tell my parents, I need to tell them, you know, when the time's right. But I just feel like you're the person that I can trust right now within my circle. And I think that you still, I had hoped that you'd still accept me. And he said, no, well, I, he, you know, gave me a big hug. We started crying. It was one of the best moments. And I think it does take a very special person to identify that in a young 21 year old who is going through a lot going through you know college is tough I mean it's it's fun it's great and there was a lot to learn and such wonderful things that you get from the college experience but to do soccer and school and go through that transition of you know figuring out who you are it it he he knew exactly what I needed in order to just make it all okay for me and from that page, you know, from that day forward, it, it was like a turn in the page. It, I just soared. I opened up. Everything just got better. And it felt like I can do this. I can be who I was destined to be. And I can, you know, fulfill my goal of playing collegiate soccer and excelling at it because of this. It was so gratifying. I bet the people, the athletes I've talked to before you, Quite a few of them mentioned, you know, the weight that they feel that they don't necessarily recognize. But then as they come out, they tell a person, they tell the family that they start to notice there's just a release of some of the weight and the pressure just disappearing. And it's cool that you felt that after talking to your coach. Yeah. And I've, I've come out to a handful of my teammates my junior year just to kind of tell them. And, you know, back then I... I was in a relationship for by my senior year. It was almost two years. So they had known, but it, the coming out to my coach, that was like the first step of me actually coming out to, um, you know, anyone publicly. And that was just, I don't know why it, it was easy for my teammates. I, I think it, I just knew that it would be okay because they were your sisters. They were like, you know, your lifelong partners the people that were going to, support you no matter what and you know obviously I, I told my my real sisters back at home that I was in a relationship with a girl and they were you know more than accepting with it and but I think that first step of maybe telling that you know that father figure was just uh something that was an a needed but it was kind of like testing the waters for me if I can you know tell my coach maybe that's something I can do you know to my family and maybe I can open up to my family because my, my coach at college was also of his Hispanic descent. And so, you know, I, I was kind of feeling the water there. Look, if I tell my coach, who's also very similar to my dad. Well, maybe I can do it for my dad as well. So you go and you mentioned you told your sisters first, besides the friends and teammates, you mm -hmm. tell the coach, how soon after do you tell your parents? Um, I actually didn't tell my parents until you know, I, I mentioned a lot of the times my friend, my best friend, um, but I didn't actually come out 
until after I graduated college. It wasn't until I started working with the D-backs. It was about a few months into my first job. So maybe around October, November, just before the holidays. I know I, I wanted to do it before the holidays because I wanted to rip the bandaid off and not deal with stressing during that time. Um, but yeah, I started my full-time job with the D-backs in August and I figured, you know, well, I'm a big girl now and I, uh, I have a full-time job and I did it. So now if, you know, they have any complaints or if I, you know, can't handle whatever happens, then at least I can financially provide and move out. Cause at that time when I moved from, uh, Flagstaff, which was two hours south, uh, or two hours north, I moved down, uh, back to Phoenix and moved in with my parents and just, you know, temporarily. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I went through the job hunting process and, um, I figured, Hey, here's the safety net that I have. And until I get my full-time job, I'll just save. And once I feel like I financially can afford to move out, then I'll move out. But yes, there was always that fear during that time. You know, are they going to find out what, what's going to happen once I come out? Are they going to throw me out? Are they going to kick me out? Am I still going to be accepted? And then are you dating while you're living with them again? So I had an awful breakup with that girlfriend. Um, so I, I really pushed away dating after my spring season in college. And I wasn't really dating. I mean, I was, you know, openly going out with friends and being single and, you know, trying to meet people. But I had I wasn't in a relationship at that time. And then so you are about to come out to your parents. You mm -hmm. have your first few months at Arizona with the Diamondbacks. How was that working for a professional baseball team? Uh, are, you, are you coming out to individuals you meet, you know, when the time comes? where it can be talked about or yeah sort of staying in the closet then yeah so it was it was definitely you know I, I was treading on on um water there a thin water I was just trying to figure out and get my feelers out there so a huge part of who I am was you know I, I want to work hard and be recognized for someone who you know has great work that work ethic who has great integrity and I wanted my work reputation to you know, represent the brand and I want to be aware of, you know, the company. And I didn't, yes, I knew, you know, from the research and, and the reputation that the D-backs had that, you know, they were somewhat accepting, but I just, I, once I started, I didn't see very many people who were out then. And this was back in August of 2012. So I made, you know, a few feelers within the first few months. I had told, um, when I, when I started working there, I was in a sales role. So I was in an entry-level sales position. So we had a class when I started. There were seven other people who started on the very same day as me. And we were getting trained at the same time. So I told my class first. And then I started telling, you know, a few more people in sales, which in sales, there's 60, 65 people in sales. So I, you know, the people that I started building those relationships with and getting feelers out there and learning from and become, you know, getting mentors, I was telling them that, you know, A, I'm, I'm gay or B, that, you know, I, this is who I am, or, you know, I, I was starting to have those conversations, but it wasn't to my boss in fear of, you know, any sort of penalties from that. It wasn't to any other, any of the other managers in sales. Um, I started coming out to my boss probably um, once I was in a, a 
a relationship, which didn't happen too long after that. It was probably, you know, six months after that. I, I think I felt comfortable after the coming out process that I can start dating. And I ended up, you know, timing, of course, I met someone and, you know, that relationship lasted two years. But yeah, I mean, it was more about making sure the timing was right. And it wasn't until I started becoming aware of the Pride Nights and the, you know, diversity focus um, across all of the major leagues that I started realizing, okay, well, maybe this could be, you know, something for me in the future, that maybe this could be the next step that I could just come out. I didn't realize that it would have led to, you know, me writing an article or publicly coming out. I, I don't think I nearly thought about it that way. Um, I just kind of thought, okay, well, that's something down the road. We'll see how this goes. Billy Bean, I had never really heard his story until he decided to make a trip to um, come and speak to our organization. He, you know, a part of um, his job is to go and speak to the players from, you know, all 30 teams and talk about the importance of social media and the things you say and um, being inclusive and, you know, coming from a former player and it really resonates with the the players in the clubhouse. So once he came to speak just to our organization at our um, team player meeting, which we have uh, once a month, all of our entire organization gets to have lunch and get updates of what's going on in the, the company. And it's led by our president CEO. And he always hosts a guest on the couch. And it's usually, you know, someone related to baseball, whether it's, you know, someone from the baseball operations side to, Again, someone from Major League level, Billy was the guest on the couch and he shared his story, talked about, you know, some of his initiatives and the things that he's doing. And I just remember sitting there and saying, wow, if he could do it, if he could go through playing baseball and going through all of the adversity he overcame, then I sure can do it <laughs> as a, uh, you know, someone in this generation who people are so accepting these days and you know, based on the values that Derek was saying as he was talking about Billy and things that, you know, I, I kind of started noticing people in the crowd and they were really moved by Billy's story. And not only was I crying and wanting to take a picture, but there were, uh, you know, people who knew Billy as a player who respected him as a player who appreciated now because he opened up about his story. So it, it really kind of started moving the needle in my head and I started thinking about it more and more. And that's when and this was back in 2015 that he had this talk that I said, okay, well, it, this seems like the right time. And so at this point, then in 2015, you've already come out to your parents, I take it. Yes. So I came out to my parents um, in November of 2012. So it had been a, a few years after that I had finally decided that I need to step up and do my part as, you know, a openly female, Hispanic, lesbian to try and be more aware and thoughtful of the, the power and the represent, representation I could bring to the Arizona Diamondbacks if I just opened up and became who I was. At this point, I do want to say that you wrote an article for Outsports, and that's actually where I first heard of you. Mm -hmm. um, I highly recommend people to go read it. I think it, it tells the cute story of coming out and how your sister <laughs> played a part in it and stuff. And and if you want to say anything about it, feel free. I just want to point it out because I, I think it's really cool. And it just sh shows 
you know, you talk about your sisters now and in the article where um, it was Addison, right? That mm -hmm. was a sister. Um, I just think it's really cool and I hope people read it. Yeah, no, I mean, that that quote that I got from her, I remember Sid saying, hey, you know, when I when I wrote it, I actually didn't have a quote from my sister. I had uh, quotes from, you know, maybe some coworkers because I thought, hey, I think people would appreciate the story more coming from, you know, maybe people who I work with, but it really made sense to have my sister just kind of, um, you know, put that cherry on it where she told her side of it. And, you know, she was someone who has always been a constant in my life, who was my support system. And I've always been someone who likes to present that I am capable, that I am powerful. And it's all stuff that I've learned from um, you know, playing soccer, those things that, you know, maybe my coaches instilled in me that, you know, they, they had us say these crazy chants and there was the positive reinforcement. But, um, you know, I was trained a certain way to be strong and not show weakness. And throughout my, once I realized that I was gay, I was like, you know, this is a weakness. But once I came to terms with that, it wasn't a weakness. And in fact, it made me who I am and it made me a unique trait. And it wasn't my identifier that, I should embrace it. And when she, you know, just uh, reaffirmed that, hey, I'm here for you. I got this. If you need any help with the coming out process, like just keep me on the line in case something goes wrong. In case something goes wrong with, uh, you know, mom and dad, they're going to, they, if they freak out, I'm here. So if you need me, just, you know, keep me on the line. And I said, you know what? It's okay. I can handle it. I got this. There are worse things. I, I can talk to mom and dad. So yeah, that that's a, uh, probably my favorite part of the story as well. How did it go with your parents? You know, we, we were sitting at dinner and I remember sitting there and I couldn't muscle up the nerves to actually do it at dinner for some reason. I We were talking about so many different things and um, it was just me, my mom and my dad. And I remember my dad kind of, you know, went through his food real quickly um, and he was wanting to watch the show that was on TV. So um, the next thing you know, it was just me and my mom talking. And so, you know, I call my dad over and I say, hey, can you come back over here? I just have something I really want to talk to you guys. It's been bothering me. And um, I remember, you know, I, I went to find the words and I couldn't. I just kind of got choked up. And I said, look, there's no easy way to say this. And I don't know why I said it like that or phrased it like that. I probably could have phrased it a little bit better and sort of, you know, scaring them a little bit. But I, I just spit it out and said, hey, I'm gay. And I hope that you guys still love me. I hope that this doesn't change, you know, what you think of me or who I am or, you know, everything you guys have taught me and who I've become and the things that I've accomplished, but this is who I am. And I think I've been, you know, dealing with it for a very long time. And I, you know, I remember alluding to my mom asking me if I was gay when I was 15 in high school. And back then that's when I, I wasn't even interested again. And, and boys, as I told you, I was just like, what mom? No, like I'm busy with school and soccer. Like I just brushed it off. And so she was like, well, why didn't you say anything back then? And I was like, mom, I, I didn't know then. I I just knew that soccer was my passion and I, I loved school and I those were my priorities. But, you know, it took a while for me to figure myself out. And, you know, my dad being the um, the Mexican that he is, he, he said, you know, you know, obviously we have, I have my religious belief. We love you. Um, you know, we, we hope that this doesn't, you know, take away from you having kids because you, your mom and I would love for you to have kids and we can have grandkids and we can, you know, have our family, but you know, we, we support you and 
then all of a sudden, you know, he got up and went back down to the couch like it was no big deal. So I took that for a while, for many, many years as him, you know, not accepting. And I avoided a lot of conversations. I, you know, uh, approached things very delicately. I kind of avoided, you know, telling them about my relationships. And later on, I realized that they just, you know, it was a transition and it was something that they were shocked and they didn't, you know, my mom says that she always knew and, and, you know, it was kind of a given since I was a tomboy all my life, but it, it took a, a while for my dad to start proactively, you know, asking about my significant other or my girlfriend, my fiance. And now it's, it's very much different where, you know, they're very thoughtful of saying, Hey, you know, Easter is coming up or Hey, Christmas is Vanessa coming. And my mom, you know, will text me and send me photos of things that Vanessa and I should be doing for our wedding. And, you know, my mom, a few years ago, she um, put together a, a stocking for Vanessa and the rest of the significant others in my family. And so she, they're, they're very aware now and they want to be inclusive. And especially throughout this whole process of me, you know, being the head of the pride night and being a voice within the community um, here in Arizona, they have actually stepped up and they're, they're always showing up for any sort of award or, any sort of event that I am associated with. Um, the first year of the Pride Night, um, I actually was honored uh, an award and it was through Phoenix Pride and it involved, you know, having uh, a few drags as the host. And I remember sitting in, next to my dad and I was just like, oh gosh, I don't know how this is going to go with my dad, how he's going to react. And the next thing you know, I see my dad recording um, the drag as she was walking up to the stage and she was dancing and she was singing and my dad's just standing there like holding the camera like screaming chanting like yelling and I'm like oh my gosh from a guy who you know used to say comments about gays growing up to now this is a guy who's videotaping and he was crying by the end of the night and he was opening up about you know his struggles and how he's overcome it and how he's so supportive of me and he wears a gay sticker on his shirt and it's just incredible that the you know from the stereotypes of a true mexican dad to now breaking those down and being supportive and saying hey isn't pride festival coming up this weekend don't you have something going on or when's that pride game are are you gonna give us that information so we can you know come to that game and get get our shirt and make sure we're there for you so it's it's really cool the the process and the journey that we have been on over the past few years that is cool I have to be honest with you, it made me a little emotional. So that's really cool. Um, I, we're about an hour in or a little over an hour. So I want to talk about briefly um, stereotypes. You mentioned that your your mom always thought you were gay. You were a tomboy. How do stereotypes affect you as a, as a lesbian? Is it something that you were able to just brush off or did it ever bother you? Um, I think it bothered me when I was younger, when, you know, there were those awkward conversations within the household of, you know, you, you should be wearing dresses or hey, when you get it, uh, when you get married someday, you, you need to be wearing heels and a dress or like, there was a lot of those comments growing up just because I always was in sweats and soccer clothes. Not only was it, I, I proud to be in those things, but I, you know, I, felt comfortable in that. And as I got older, you know, I found that, you know, I, I saw people like Ellen who were dressed a certain way that, you know, that they could dress 
comfortably how they want that are more masculine and still be, you know, feminine and still, you know, not wear dresses and not wear heels. And I can do that and it, it would be okay. So I think those conversations with my family were very, very difficult. They didn't affect me nearly as much. And I think I was always scared of that. And that's probably why I didn't come out. I said, you know, and I remember vividly when I first started, I said, okay, I need to wear dresses and I need to do this because this is what people in sales wear. Um, and this is what women in sales wear. But I think once I got to the D-backs and I saw that it doesn't matter and you could really dress and act however you want. There are women who have short hair who, you know, are, are straight, who are, you know, rocking the same outfit that I'm wearing. It's, it's all about what makes you comfortable and what, you know, professional and, and business casual. And that, that term is very, you know, it's gender neutral. It can go either way. And there's, you know, a, a gal that works with us who has short hair that, you know, initially when she first started, there were conversations that were saying, Hey, is, is that professional? We just don't know. But, you know, and she dressed like a male and she, you know, wore button up suits and she, that's what she felt comfortable with. But once I started breaking down those barriers and they knew that, you know, I was kind of that token gay person that they could ask and say, Hey, yeah, I'm not familiar with this. And this, you know, this isn't HR I'm talking about. This is just, you know, your normal sales guys who didn't know any better and who were raised differently. These were the guys that were like, Hey, look, like I, yeah, let's lean on Noel. I think it, I started breaking down those barriers and understanding, look, like these stereotypes that we know in society that we have created, that we have this image and, you know, Noelle is someone who probably, you know, doesn't fit those lesbian stereotypes. She has long hair or, you know, she looks differently than, you know, most, you know, uh, tomboy or butch or anything like that. Like all of those, those stereotypes that a lot of these men thought you know, women should dress under those categories. They, mm-hmm. they saw that if Noel can wear this, well, okay, then it doesn't matter. Or once they started seeing things like, you know, the drags that were coming to the pride night and people dressing differently, I think it just changed people's thought process. It, it really hit me when I went to an event at, it was um this group called Fierce Friends Phoenix. And their whole goal is to, you know, bring people together as friends but um, of different backgrounds and different, you know, jobs and occupations and they, you know, different ages and they do meetups and they, they put these happy hours together and, you know, they're LGBTQ and they um, are accepting of all different people. And this specific event I went to, they wanted you to open up and share your story. And so I shared my coming out story and I remember it opened up for questions at the end and someone raised their hand and um, she said, Hey, so as a drag or as a transgender, would you guys, would you, the Arizona Diamondbacks accept us if we were different than, you know, most people. And I said, we, as a Diamondbacks, we accept people based on if they have the right skill set, if they can do the job. So yeah, I a hundred percent believe, you know, that, our organization represents that of it doesn't matter who you are and we are you know hiring of diverse backgrounds and I think that's when it hit me and resonated that we are making a difference in this community especially in Arizona um, within the LGBTQ community but that was when I think it came full circle for me was when 
someone felt comfortable asking that question to me. And I just lost it. I started clapping, got very excited. And it, it just made me feel so, I, I felt like I could do anything because people felt like they couldn't or that the, because there's our Dimebacks were such a uh, public organization that they didn't feel accepted. And I think a lot of times fear, the fear of the unknown, will I be accepted by this public organization? Scares people, but it, that was the coolest moment for me, you know, two, three years into all the pride efforts that we've put in um, that someone, you know, asked that question and that we, we can comfortably say, yes, but that's who we are. And that's who the D-backs represent. It's really cool. How many years has the Diamondbacks done a Pride Night? 2017 was the first year. What was your involvement in the first one? So I put it on completely. Um, you know, no one else in sales really had that comfort level, that knowledge of who to reach out to within the community. So I, I started and planned it. Um, I had six weeks to plan it. You know, I, I knew, you know, how to put it together. I'd done group sales nights all the time. but I had, I had, I was more invested and I wanted to make sure that I was doing things the right way. So the first year it was not only was there going to be a, a group ticket because, you know, I didn't want people to be offended that it was simply just a group ticket. It was, we need to create something so that it was an event so that the community knew that we were bought in as an organization. So we had a few layers. We had a panel. We had a, um, um, a nonprofit expo, um, and we made sure that our team shop and a handful of other places were selling items, merchandise that had the logo. So I had the logo created, which I knew would be the, the start of, you know, the pride efforts down the road. But once I got that, it was, you know, the ground was running. I knew that the company had buy-in. Um, but after the first one, we sold 400 tickets. And no one expected that from the first group sale night, um, you know, to put it in comparison. I had tried to come up with another different um, group night and I sold um, maybe 17 tickets. So mm -hmm. to get 400 tickets out of a, a first idea event, it was just incredible. And not only were we, did we see some success from it, but the public was talking about it. We had, you know, some inquiries from the media. We had people from a handful of other organizations asking about it. A lot of our big major partners were asking about it. So there was kind of a buzz about Pride Night. And not only did we do it do it justice for the first year, but you know, we we had the outsports recognition. We had Billy Bean's attention. Um Billy Bean came out the second year in order to support us based on the first year. So to have Billy Bean come the second year, it was, you know, incredible. It was something that um, you know, not not only did the organization not believe that that was um, a real possibility, but I had buy-in from, you know, baseball operations. The GM was reaching out the day of the very first uh, Pride Night and said, hey, Noel, we want to su support you. We just don't know how, but let's look at it for next year. So I was getting emails from our president CEO, our GM, our senior VP of communication um, to get all these high level executives as a account executive in sales about the pride night and the impact that I'm making and the, the, the barriers that I'm breaking and the potential for um, the future that, that was 
really awesome for the first year that not only did we put something together that was worthwhile, that resonated with the community, but that was going to leave a lasting impact for forever. And that's something that I, I now can say that I'm incredibly proud of now that I'm, I'm not the sole person that's, you know, behind the scenes doing everything. I, I was that first one, but the second one, you know, I have another person who's helping me from the sales side. Now that I'm on the community affairs staff, we've hit both levels. We hit both sides. Not all, not only are we doing outreach within the community actively with events and things that we're planning outside of Pride Night, um, but we're fundraising and we're, we're trying to hit all these different avenues in order to uh, show the LGBT community that this is making an impact, but that we care, that it's not just, we're going to ask for your one-time sale every single year for this Pride Night. It's, we are consistently supporting you all year round and we want Chase Field not only we, w- we don't want you to just see the rainbow a logo and identify as that's your logo or that's you know who you're connected to we want you to see and be proud of the entire brand as a whole we want you to say that local team those d-backs those are my team and regardless of if they have the rainbow a logo the re- the you know regular logo and the regular jersey and the players of the team the organization that invests in our community supports us and I'm going to support them regardless of if it's Pride Night or not. That's our goal that it now represents, you know, on all levels, not just on the rainbow logo level or the rainbow flag level or on the Pride Night level. That That's really cool. And it's something you should be proud about. When that first year, did you have any player interaction with the event or was it mainly off field? Um, the one success story that I have from a player standpoint was actually from a player's mom who reached out to me on Facebook messenger the day before the event and said, Hey, I read your out sports article. I didn't know that we had a pride night and this player actually has a gay brother and I want to do everything that I can to support you. And if you are available on pride night, I would love to meet you face to face so we can try to work on collaborating. And that was really cool, again, to have a player's mom reach out to me on Facebook because she Googled Pride Night Arizona Diamondbacks and my name popped up. That we, we wish that, you know, more players and more families would be like that. It, you know, it's hard and it's um, something that we aren't aware of yet. And there's, you know, there's still that fine line of building the relationship with the players and with our rosters ever changing. Mm-hmm. People are passionate about different things and they have, you know, different things they want to open up about. but yeah, this player is still on our roster today. He's taking a different approach with a lot of his outreach, which are more foster care initiatives because his wife is um, from foster care. Um, so they, they both support that as their, their program. But, you know, our goal was hopefully to have a player who could stand up and say, Hey, I, I'm going to take ownership of the LGBT community and the pride community. And let's, you know, let's do this. Let's start being more active in the community. Um, we hope that that will happen in the future. Right now, you know, we've got a lot of people on board within the organization and Billy Bean. So we're, we're working on that for the future. Yeah, you're making steps, positive steps. Before we wrap up, I want to touch on home life. Mm-hmm. You, you seem busy with baseball. Obviously, the baseball season just started. And then um, you have your dog, Henry. Yep. <laughs> you have found someone... Personally, it seems like that you're going to, um, you're engaged to, what, and what was her name? Vanessa. Vanessa, how, 
how is that being professional sports, having a fiance, how does that all work out? I mean, it just seems time management would be hard. And then you work nights a lot and I don't know what her schedule is, but it must be hard to balance work and home. It definitely is. And I think once we, once I was presented with the opportunity of moving from sales to community affairs, that was a huge factor in why I made the decision to move out of sales was that, you know, I wanted to be able to have a little bit more work-life balance. I wanted to focus on the future that I had. Um, not only did I know that, you know, we were making this engagement together, we were focused, uh, we were going to move forward towards getting married. And, you know, we look to have kids and we want to get a house and we want to, you know, start doing these things that are coming, you know, down, um, that are coming along our way in the future. And we really put that into perspective over the past few years, we've been struggling with our opposite schedules, you know, with sales, it was a time commitment. I was working games, I was working weekends, I was working holidays. And in baseball in general, and it's very long season, you, you do work games, and you do work holidays, and that's a given. But with her schedule, she works nights. And so that was almost near impossible. And we had to schedule and set dates for us to take days off. Um, working in the hospitality industry for her, you know, it it's very, very hard. Um, but thankfully, when we first started dating, I was blessed with someone who grew up a Arizona Diamondbacks fan and <laughs> who played softball. And she played softball um, at the community college level. So she was actually very passionate about the Diamondbacks before she started dating me. She actually has a ton of Luis Gonzalez and Randy Johnson stuff, a ton of memorabilia at home. She collected baseball cards. And so it was a perfect fit when we first started dating. She never imagined that, you know, that would happen. But um, it was like, you know, our two worlds collided and meshed perfectly where her family comes out to games regularly, um, both from her immediate family to her extended family. We, you know, have the opportunity to host them out quite often. They love the Arizona Diamondbacks brand. Um, I'm most proud of our, our new program that we're coming out with our girls play ball program from the community side where we're giving girls this free opportunity to play baseball and they get a hat and a t-shirt and a glove and a, a bag, but we're giving them this opportunity to play baseball within the community. And Vanessa's uh, cousin's daughter is going to be playing in this free program that I'm, I put together from scratch. And it's, it's just, it has been an incredible experience to find a partner who meshes completely with you yet we're yin and yang like she fits me perfectly she's very you know soft-spoken and she's not as outgoing as me but you know opposites attract and with the core value of us being passionate about doing things together and going out to baseball games we really find that it works well for us yes we do still have days that we have to you know set a time um you know days off for us or we go on vacation we're so excited for our wedding in October, we're planning a honeymoon not too long after that, where we're going to go to Hawaii and spend at least seven days together with each other. That's oh, going to nice. be the longest we've ever spent together, you know, since we first started dating, where we're going to have that time together. But yeah, it definitely takes, you know, working that into our schedule and planning it out. And, and um, it, it is work trying to make that aspect of our relationship work. But we right now, 
our relationship is so great that we're on the same page and we communicate so well and she's like my best friend. So we really do a good job of saying when, hey, you really need a day off or we really need to spend some time together. Let's, I'm going to, you know, book a day or a spa day. Or I'm going to go book a, a day that we need to, you know, get out of town. So we're really good about being proactive of setting those day, days up for ourselves. That is awesome. You sound perfectly balanced and you have the job you love. You have this fiance that you love and I'm really happy for you. Um, Thank you. I, I need to wrap up though. Um, and before I do, I have my final 20 questions to ask everyone. Okay. So let me just start and, um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Okay. Um, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Ooh, flying. All right. Um, do you have a favorite podcast? Do you listen to podcasts? Uh, I do. Yeah. Um, I listen to a lot of sports podcasts currently right now. I'm really obsessed with uh, Jonathan Van Ness though. Um, just because he's always diving into topics and issues that he doesn't know of. And so it's actually very educational if you want some quick knowledge on some things that you don't know about. Oh yeah. I listen to it. <laughs> so great. Yeah. He's, he's crazy. And then he just restarted the gay of thrones his recap of game of thrones i don't know if you oh, watched yeah. that no i don't yeah so it's pretty funny who is your first celebrity crush um jennifer lopez nice um if you could meet anyone dead or alive who would it be um gosh i'd have to say pele the legendary brazilian soccer player Nice. What is the most interesting thing you have read or seen this week? This week? Well, I was sick for two days, but I will say I read a handful of things from Disney about what they're going to release here with Star Wars. I won't give any spoilers, but that is pretty interesting. And I know that's not the most interesting to, to most people, but to me, Disney leaks and what's coming out with all that and Avengers, and that's all very interesting to me. Have you heard what they're going to do for the Star Wars land at Disneyland? Um, I've seen, I've, I try to make it a point to go three times a year. So I, I've seen a lot of teasers and I've seen, you know, um, I've been on rides where you can kind of see it being built and I've peeked through the little holes of the, the, um, the doors that they have shut to block it off. So yes, I, I've been very in tune with that. And I try to follow up with, other social accounts so that way um i'm aware of any leaks that they have that's cool yeah i guess but they um they just came out saying and i i just heard about it briefly but it sounds like they're only gonna let you in the land for like four hours at a time just to yeah. try to limit yeah the they they and they have special tickets that they need you to buy for um the first initial rush it's like the first at however many days or you have to buy a certain ticket in order to gain entry yeah it's gonna be crazy there this summer um let me move on <laughs> sorry <laughs> no no worries I, I could talk disney too so it's not a problem <laughs> um what is the most recent streaming obsession for you okay um vanessa and i have been on a marvel movie kick we stay up way too late watching all of the old uh avengers and and iron man and we're trying to watch them all in order but it's borderline obsessive. We're now spending money to rent the movies when um, we need to probably not spend money on renting those movies. Um, 
but yes, we're we're very obsessed with Marvel right now before the new movie comes nice. out. Which fictional character would you like to meet in real life? Movie or book? It doesn't matter. Just any fictional character. Gosh, I would say basically any Disney character. Um, I I know that that's super cliche, but yeah, um, any of the Marvel characters, uh, Iron Man. Um, oh, Scarlett Johansson's character. Oh yeah. If animals could talk, which animal would be the most annoying? Um. I would say Henry Corgi. He <laughs> barks all the time. Yeah. And as you heard this episode, my dog barks as well. <laughs> um, who inspires you? Oh, gosh. Uh, a lot of women. I'm definitely a feminist. So um, any women leading the way, you know, Oprah, Ellen, um, Beyonce, um, uh, Julie Foudy, um, Jessica Mendoza, a lot of those women who have just blaze their own path and take no for an answer and do do anything they can to achieve their goals and, and um, create opportunities for others. Nice. What is your favorite word? Hmm, that's tough. Which one I say all the time or the one that Just I like? Just your favorite. To I'm very, I love to enunciate. So I will probably say important, important. Okay. What is your least favorite word? Bug. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, music, quotes, reading, um, thoughtful questions, questions that you know lead you to ask questions, uh, follow-up questions. Yeah, I would say music because, again, I like to dance. I, I like pumping myself up. Um, but I, I like to be critically challenged. So I, I like thinking and I like reading and I think quotes inspire me every single day as well. All right. What turns you off? I think people who, um, I think bad drivers, people who uh. just suck at driving and were, um, you know, the, the hybrids of the world who drive slow and maybe who cut you off. Yeah. Bad drivers. All right. What is your favorite curse word? Um, I say shit a lot. Um, okay. I say the F word a lot. Um, there, there's a lot of cuss words I use. All right. I'll say the F word is the one I use a lot. Okay. What sound or noise do you love? Ooh. I think I, I love um, the, the water dropping out of the faucet. It almost is like soothing. Okay, interesting. I know, very opposite of what most people say. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, nails on a chalkboard, um, any sort of alarm, a fire alarm, um, I guess nails clicking on a keyboard. <laughs> okay. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Attempt? Uh, maybe writing a book or songwriting. All right. What profession would you not like to do? I am awful at any sort of chemistry, science, or math. So <laughs> I eliminate quite a bit of professions from that. Um, any medical or, you know, scientific profession. All righty. 
If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? That, Noelle, you live in a passionate and loving, caring life. And uh, I love you. I'm excited for what's next. Sweet. Final question here is, I like to ask my guests, if they could say one thing to a 12-year-old child who might be coming to terms with their own sexuality or struggling, what would that one thing be? Be yourself. Don't be afraid of the future, of the unknown, of what others may say. You're going to find out who you are and it's going to be an awesome journey and don't regret anything. Um, just embrace who you are and use those unique traits and remember that those are strengths and those can take you anywhere and give you opportunities that you never thought would exist. Nice. Well, Noel, (laughs) I really appreciate you coming on. I know it's a busy time for you and I just thank you. You've been a great guest and a lot of fun. I appreciate that. No, thanks for thinking of me. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed my interview with Noel Guevara. Take care, and hopefully see you on Thursday for my special episode with Richie Fagan.